0: welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Ryan Delano. He has climbed and skied in the United States, Canada, Chile, Argentina, Svalbard, and Antarctica. But as a child, he had difficulty controlling his emotions and voluntarily was committed to a mental hospital. So I'm grateful to have Ryan here today to share more about his story and what he's got going on in his life. So thank you so much, Ryan. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Hi, I'm Ryan. Um, happy to be here. Uh, it's funny, people always give me these intros and I'm always like, hmm, where do I, how do I summarize myself in a few sentences? Um, You kind of did it pretty well. I'm a climber, skier. Uh, I like to say climber as an umbrella term because um, I'm often climbing mountains to ski down them and climbing rocks in the summer, so the constant is always up. Um, I'm currently a uh, rock climbing guide in Acadia National Park, um, and I am the author of Without Restraint, I go to school hopefully for one more semester at Vermont State University in Linden, Vermont, kind of middle of nowhere town. That's kind of the gist.
0: What is it that you're currently studying in school? Outdoor education. <laughs> that probably should have been obvious with what you're interested in. Uh, do you want to share kind of like what that sort of degree looks like and what what you're learning?
1: Yeah, so um, outdoor education is essentially an umbrella term for a lot of things. Um, So guiding is kind of in there, um, but we consider outdoor education to kind of go above and beyond because there is a teaching element involved in it. Wilderness therapy, uh, program management, uh, those are all kind of lumped in the umbrella of the degree Um, but essentially you have a concentration. So mine is the recreation, uh, concentration. So I'm learning more about taking people out into the wilderness and having field experiences than I am about managing a program or doing wilderness therapy. And essentially, uh, the degree takes on a lot of looks. Sometimes you are out in the field for classes. Like we did an immersion semester where it was two months of being in the woods for a week on an expedition and being in class for a week, planning the next expedition. But it's also a lot of time in the classroom learning about um, the psychology and the theory behind why this is important for people, why this profession needs to be recognized as a profession and not just a bunch of you know hippies out in the woods trying to make a quick buck showing people a cool tree, uh, and how we can help the world and create better people through outdoor education.
0: Yeah, I think you touched on some good points there about the like general perception of, say, somebody who works in a national park or is on, you know, one of these recreational activities. And you mentioned that you currently are a climbing guide. So what are you hoping for a future career path?
1: What am I hoping for a future career path? Really to expand um, the amount of guiding that I can be doing and the terrain that I can be doing it on. Uh, So when you're um, in kind of guide world, there's the AMGA, the American Mountain Guide Association, and they have levels of certification. So right now I have my rock guide course, so I can take people on terrain that's up to grade two without supervision. So the commitment grades are essentially how long does it take to climb the thing you're climbing? Grade two is a route that takes about a half a day. Um, grade three is like a full day. Grade four is like a really long full day. And once you get beyond that, it's overnight. Um, but your scope expands the more training you have. Um, but honestly, that's just the easiest answer. I don't know how it's going to expand. i um, most inspired by the kind of guiding where i feel like i'm doing more than just um taking people out and showing them a thing and then i'm never going to see them again i like when i feel like i've broken new ground with somebody who wouldn't otherwise have been in that position like the people who do come with stories that they can't do this or won't be good at this and like don't think it's for them and we can work together uh, and help them realize the capabilities they hold within themselves uh, that are beyond their perceptions and, and those preconceived stories. So I feel like there is a future where I can be doing more uh, to help people um, than just like taking out like the usual clients. Uh, but I don't quite know what that is yet. So I'm still exploring that front.
0: Right. Of course. And so what happens if, you know, you've got someone who's signed up for one of your tours or your, your adventures out that, you know, they may have this preconceived notion of like, I can't physically do this. And then when, like, once you're in it, it is a struggle and say, like, you can't, like, they can't finish what you're doing or you need to kind of like pivot. What is that sort of situation like?
1: Well, I mean, not all rock climbs are created equal. Um, there's easier ways up the cliff than others. So oftentimes, um, I kind of know pretty early on what we're looking at um, with a client. Like when, when we're doing the approach just to get to the cliff and they're already kind of struggling with the movement or just feel uncomfortable, Um Like I know, okay, this is somebody who might be afraid of heights and maybe somebody who's not very traditionally athletic. And I can pick a climb that is going to feel exciting for them, but not feel overwhelming. And most of the time I'm kind of right on the money. Um, I do have experiences where a person, I take a chance with somebody and I'm like, all right, this is going to be kind of a reach for you. Uh, I'm going to put you on this route and just see like how it goes And some routes, it's really easy if they can't do it because you lower them back to the ground. Sometimes you're climbing out. Like in Acadia, we have a lot of cliffs that are on the ocean. So you're lowering people in from above to just above the water and having them climb back up to you. If they can't climb out, we have to create a technical system where we can haul them back up the cliff. And that can be a little bit hire some for the guide. And it can be a little devastating for the client sometimes because they they know that they're being hauled. Suddenly the rope is moving them up. Um, and we might go back down to easier terrain after that.
0: And so, you know, you have a personal experience in climbing, skiing. What made you first want to be a guide to help other people?
1: Well, um, I guess I'll I'll have to get into uh, my background a little bit. Um, so when I was younger, um, I was moved out of traditional schools uh, and into therapeutic schools. And unfortunately, um, the therapeutic school I was moved into had a method um that they really believed in, which was when kids were acting up, they would physically restrain them. So it. Imagine a typical wrestling match. It looked something like that. Um, And they thought eventually they could break kids and make them behave. And that did not work for me. And I developed a lot of trauma. Um, And um, I really was not heading for anything that looked like it could be remotely successful. People were kind of telling me I was going to end up dead or in jail by the time that I was 18 Uh, When I was seven years old, just on a whim, my dad took me skiing. And when uh, I went skiing for the first time, it was kind of the first time anything clicked for me. I knew right away this was going to be a realm for me um, and something that I was really going to excel at and that I really enjoyed. Um, So as I got more into skiing, um, it was clear that that was going to be a part of my career somehow was being in the mountains. Like I already had enough obstacles on the path to going to a traditional college and, you know, having a career. So I might as well play to my favor. And I toyed with different ideas, ski instructing, ski patrol. Um, and eventually, um, just through my own personal experiences, I started to meet people who were guides and who, um, did this for a living, took people into the mountains and brought them on experiences they might not have otherwise been able to have on their own. And a lot of um, people who saw potential in me and were mentors to me were also guides. So it was just a natural choice for me to want to have that career.
0: And so then how did you also get into rock climbing? Like they're both kind of, they're both outdoor sports. They're both somewhat extreme to an extent. Uh, so, what was the transition there to add that to your expertise?
1: So, uh I always tell um uh, my clients when they ask me this that I got into rock climbing through the back door. Um so I um I got really into skiing and I was a very strong skier. Um and eventually I got to the point where the stuff that was in resorts um was kind of had kind of done some of the hardest things you could do accessed from a lift. And I was never going to be one of those people that was in the terrain park doing backflips or jumping off the biggest cliff in the ski area. I I wanted to kind of ski the steeper and more adventurous things um, just at my own pace. And it was clear the next steps for me were going to involve climbing mountains. So I started climbing, um, learning how to climb steep snow, how to climb ice, how to use ropes for rappelling to ski mountains that were so crazy that you couldn't even um, ski through them cleanly. You had to like ski to the top of a cliff, rappel off it, then ski out the bottom. So I had enough rope skills from that, that when the summer would come around and I was kind of dealing with like the off season woes, one day I was like, you know, I probably, I probably know enough that we could just go rock climbing and we would hike up to a cliff in town and just like drape the rope over a tree and, like not the way you're supposed to do it <laughs> and we went and climbed um this was around 2019 um just before that uh free solo had came out and it's kind of funny cuz all climbers make fun of that movie cuz it's like it's like the mainstream interpretation of climbing it was like the first thing that made you know your grandmother know about rock climbing um so I like think that that's hilarious that so many people make fun of it. Cause I was one of those people that got inspired by it. Just not necessarily the idea of climbing a cliff without ropes, but just um, the idea of moving over that much rock with so much fluidity um, and precision. I was like, I kind of want to go ahead with this. So me and my friend, we went to REI and we bought, six quick draws, which they have a carabiner on both ends. One connects to a bolt that's um, drilled into the rock and the other you clip your rope into. So if you fall, you fall to your last bolt. We watched a video on how to lead climb, which is the thing I just mentioned there, how to catch a lead fall. Um, So that's when your partner is on the bottom and they're holding the rope and capturing your progress so you don't hit the ground, essentially. And with those two YouTube videos, we went to Rumney and we just started rock climbing, and thank God we survived.
0: So with that last statement there, were your parents ever concerned that what you were doing was dangerous?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, My dad, um, we learned how to ski together, and he was with me on a lot of my early ski adventures. And I think he had this perception that rock climbing was much more dangerous than skiing. And I've come to learn that it's kind of not that way. I think in pictures, rock climbing looks a lot more extreme, but um, you're always connected to a rope. And even when you lead climbing, when you fall, you fall to whatever your last piece of protection is, whether that's a pre-drilled bolt or uh, a piece of gear that you've placed in a crack. Uh, And these are designed to hold thousands of pounds. And the harder the climbing gets, the safer it gets. Because steeper walls, or even overhanging walls, they mean oftentimes you fall into just dead airspace. You don't hit the rock ever. Whereas when you fall skiing, you're just tumbling down the mountain. You stop when (laughs) gravity is is done with you. So I I think it's a lot safer than it looks.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely makes sense. Now, have you ever um participated in either of these sports at a professional or competition level and has that ever interested you?
1: Competition never really interested me. Um I think part of um part of what uh initially drew me to mountain sports was the idea that uh you weren't competing with anybody. When I was a kid, I hated um competing. Um probably just because with with the struggles I was going through, um I didn't really have a good foundation of self-love yet. So, um I I took losing very personally because it was like never just a game for me. It was like I was putting my all on the line and if it wasn't good enough, I was upset. Um and mountain sports were kind of a way um to build myself instead of like, you know, risking um, win or loss in competition. And I learned to build confidence through that. Um, the, uh, the professional thing, the more I learn about it, the more it's so like ill-defined. Um, (laughs) uh, I guess right now, um, Kate's real food sends me four boxes of bars per month to talk about them on the internet. And I wouldn't have secured that. If I didn't post so much about skiing, does that make me a professional skier? I don't think so. Um, I don't just ski and climb for the love of it for a living. So I guess I'll say no. Uh, It would be cool.
0: Yeah, it's definitely, you know, you kind of got to see where it takes you a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned how as a child, you know, you went from traditional school to therapeutic schools and didn't have a great experience, but now you are in college and you've clearly had some growth in your personal life, which sounds like is very much attributed to skiing. So what has that transition and growth been like for you in, you know, kind of like the emotional mental world?
1: That is like such a big question. I'm trying to think where to start with that. Um I think um it's I mean, when I um, when I initially went to the hospital, like you mentioned um, in the intro, that was kind of like my lowest of lows. Um, because essentially, the only reason I went, um, I um, once I was in that therapeutic school that was essentially being abusive to me. Once you have um, a certain number of accommodations, which is funny that they even call them that on your record. Like if you're in small classrooms, if you're Um, needing to be restrained, if you have um, one-to-one aids, um, any school that can't provide those things won't take you. So if I wanted to go to a school that didn't do restraints, I couldn't do that unless I was at another school and I proved for like a year that I didn't need any restraints, then I could come back. But that just wasn't in the cards for me. I was Full blown PTSD. um, Just if I sensed any conflict, I was going to fight or run. So I wouldn't have made it through a day in another environment where I was um, even the slightest bit aware that I could be restrained. Um, So they suggested going to the hospital to put me on medication to say to another school, hey, he's on medication now. Maybe this makes a difference. And it was a colossal failure. That was not the place for me to be. I completely unraveled. Um my family almost lost control of my care. Um I basically we got out by my dad just telling me like just pretend everything's fine and like keep it together so they'll say that you're doing well enough to leave. And I got um a severe side effect on one of the medications. This one I was that they put me on called Lamictal if you put too much in your body at once, um, it can cause you to get this skin disease where, um, your skin literally like rashes first and then it blisters and starts to fall off. And I started getting the rashes. So we had to take the medication out and we were back at square one anyway. Um, so the next 10 years were essentially just healing from that PTSD. Um, I was on meds for a while. Um, we tried different ones and then I ended up taking all of them out because I was being mismedicated, and currently I'm on none of them. And eventually, um, through just years of cracking at the system, they did let me back into public school. Um, And once I was there, it was difficult because I got what I was hoping for, which was to be in an environment where I had the same opportunities as all of the other kids and wasn't being restrained, wasn't being um, treated like less than. Um, but I didn't have the confidence to navigate that environment. I felt like I didn't uh, belong there necessarily or didn't have the same tools as the other kids. And that's really where the climbing and the skiing did a lot for me because I think without um, doing a sport where it really it's on you, um, whether you succeed or fail, and you need to learn, to trust yourself, um, to believe in yourself, um, to form a close relationship with how you think, uh, that gave me the tools to overcome a lot of those, those scars and those obstacles that run deeper than the initial trauma.
0: And so then when it was time for you to apply to college, did you think you were ready for college that you'd be able to go, or was there still some sort of concern
1: until I set foot in the building I did not think that I had any shot I had a lot of conversations with my dad I was I was scared because I just this the high school that I went back to when I did return to public school was so clicky um and a lot of people were very nice to me but uh, I didn't belong to any of the cliques because all of them formed already so I didn't have anybody to hang out with on the weekends I didn't have a prom date I didn't get that kind of attention. Um, and I just thought it was because I was weird or unlikable. And I'm like, when I get to college, it's just going to be more of the same, if not worse. Cause now, now I live there. And <laughs> um, it really, it took me going to college and starting to find a friend group and seeing that like, it's not, it's not high school and not this high school in particular, like people, they're all new, they're, they're trying to find out who they are and the p- type of people they want to surround themselves with. They're not going to prejudge you because you weren't there with them in kindergarten.
0: And I think that, you know, makes a lot of sense for a lot of people, no matter what their experience was in high school or earlier. Um, but it sounds like, you know, you've been able to find yourself, like, with Mm -hmm. good people in college
1: yeah it's it's been um an interesting ride i mean covid kind of messed a lot of things up um i remember um when i got there the first um couple months um were like pretty rough because you know it was i was new and it was kind of a small school and i like tried to find a couple groups and it didn't really seem to work out but Um, one of my, uh, friends from the outdoor club in high school, actually, he was two years ahead of me and he took me climbing in the fall one day and he was like, how's it going? And I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, it's going all right. I'm finding all my classes. And he's like, no, like really, how is it going? Like, are you doing all right here? Like, are you feeling like you have a support system? Like you have friends and like, if I'm being honest, like kind of sucks, um, And he introduced me to his group, which was a wonderful group of people um, and had a lot of great energy. Um, And we had a a lot of good times together. But unfortunately, um, COVID hit and I, um, I went home and they all lived in Vermont, kind of off campus. So they all kind of stayed together. And by the time we all came back together, it was time for them to graduate and kind of move out into the world anyway. So things kind of split up. But I found um, that sense of community through um, the local Northeast climbing and skiing scene. You know, it's pretty small and we all kind of know each other. And you got nothing to do when you're out on the hill for eight hours, but talk to each other. So you get close pretty fast.
0: And are you from somewhere in the Northeast originally?
1: I guess I should have put that in the intro, huh? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm uh, I'm from Sudbury, Massachusetts. which is not um in the the northeast mountain community, but it's in the northeast. It's about a half hour outside of Boston.
0: Yeah, so not you know you didn't have to necessarily like fly across the country when COVID hit, but you know did have to return home uh, a number of hours away.
1: Yeah, and it and it was a weird return home because um everybody was just supposed to stay inside. Uh, and it got really weird for outdoorsy people because, um, they, there was this weird trend for like the first couple months of everybody promoting, like now's not the time to go into the mountains because if you get injured, you could get a rescue or sick and people were getting shamed, um, for going outside. If you posted a picture of yourself skiing from like March to June of that year, like you were going to get run off the internet. And it was, it was a scary place to be.
0: Yes, that definitely, you know, that period of time was very different for a lot of people. And we've come a long way, um, as well from there to figure out, you know, what, what makes sense these days. Mm -hmm. Now, in my intro, I, I noted a handful of countries and continents that you have had the chance to climb or ski on. So what has that been like traveling and going to these different places and having and having the chance even to pursue your passions?
1: The traveling has been really cool. Um, I attribute a lot of it to uh, friends in high places is what I, I say. Uh, I was fortunate to meet a crowd of people that was kind of in that expedition ski world um and that kind of started with this chain of people and i think this is i like to go from the beginning even though it's like you know kind of a lot to explain just because i don't want people listening to like just like be looking at people and like wondering like how the hell does this happen like it doesn't just happen like there's there's kind of a chain reaction but um the theme is that when you are organically pursuing something that you really enjoy um you're going to meet people who are trying to go where you're going and you're going to meet people who have gone there and want to help you. Um, So when we were out in big sky, when I was 12, I really wanted to ski this one particular run um, called the big couloir. And what makes it special? um, It's a 1200 foot run kind of lined by large cliffs on either side. It's very aesthetic kind of S shaped snow gully down the mountain and you have to have a partner, um, and avalanche gear for patrol to let you in. Um, they do avalanche control it, but it's kind of a filter. Anybody who's not supposed to be skiing in there isn't going to have that equipment. And my dad didn't want to ski it. He was like, I'm going to die if I try and ski that thing. Um, so <laughs> he knew it was important to me and he hired, uh, an instructor slash guide for the day to hopefully, me down there and i was kind of an unathletic looking 12 year old but i could ski and um we met uh, a guy named ben brousseau that day who was kind of the first person that didn't prejudge me um and was like yeah you're you're young um but let's see how you ski before we decide whether you can go or not uh and he liked what he saw on the hill so we went up there and we skied it um Every time we came back to, to Big Sky at that point, um, we made sure to connect with him um, and do some skiing. And uh, him and I formed a really good um, relationship early on. Um, he got invited to coach a ski camp in Chile uh, and invited us to uh, come down to the camp. So we go to Chile when I was around 15. And when I was there, I met Chris Davenport, who um, he was... Uh, a professional skier who skied all of the 14 ers in Colorado so every mountain taller than 14,000 feet and he guides a trip to Antarctica um and I was like oh I didn't even know you could ski in Antarctica and when I was 17 um and I was a senior um Ben Um, was potentially thinking that he would get to go on the trip if he could get four people to sign on. He would get to go. And my dad trusts him a lot and was like, I think it'd be awesome if all of us got to go on that trip. Um, But ultimately, we were the only two he got, so Ben didn't get to go, but my dad and I did end up going to Antarctica. And we got on that boat, and that was like my first exposure to like, Oh, this is what's really out here cuz on that trip was 20 mountain guides who had been all over the world, people who had skied in the arctic in Svalbard in um you know, Kashmir, Pakistan, like Russia, all these crazy places that you just wouldn't think there'd be skiing. Um and that was my first exposure to guiding and just my first exposure to what was out there in the world. Um On that trip, leaning over the side of the railing, I met, um, this guy, um, named Brendan Legacy, who essentially, um, he was like where I would want to be in like 20 years. He's like, got this like beautiful, um, little a-frame out in, um, Lake Tahoe and has like a super cool wife and kid and skis every day, um. Even though he's like somehow also like a professor at a college now, he like he'll ski at six a.m. in the morning, or like at five o'clock in the afternoon if he has to. And went through a long period of his life where he did expeditions all around the world. And for some reason, he took a liking to me and was like, "This kid is gonna like go places if he just has some direction." Um. So through being out in Lake Tahoe together, um, we pitched the idea of going to Baffin Island together. And this is kind of the biggest thing I've done. Uh, Baffin Island is kind of above all because all these other places have, um, you know, streamlined guiding services that take people there. Um, Baffin Island doesn't even have a streamlined way to get there. Um, (laughs) The only people who go there are like the Inuits who live there. Big um, like companies backing ski expeditions, so like the North Face team or like Black Diamond athletes have been out there, and narwhal scientists because Baffin Bay has ninety percent of the world's narwhals. So he pitched the idea; it was a place he'd always dreamt about going, but it had never come together for him. Um, and I was like, I didn't even know that was an option. Yes, I'm in. Let's make it happen. So two years of planning later, um, we combined our expedition with um, a professional skier named Cody Townsend's team, and we took a charter plane to Clyde River and took a 100-mile snowmobile ride out to what I would describe as the best ski terrain on the planet. Just 5,000-foot vertical rock faces split by hallways of snow, and you climb that hallway of snow and you ski it, you sleep on frozen sea ice. Um, hopefully don't get eaten by polar bears. And it's just, it's otherworldly. So just through a chain of meeting people and saying yes to various opportunities, I found myself from being like a kid dreaming of big mountains to a kid um, learning from like the best and sleeping in a tent on sea ice skiing otherworldly coolars.
0: Yeah, it sounds like, you know, meeting the right people, getting the chance to have these great adventures. Do you have more places like on your bucket list that you want to get to to ski?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think another theme you find in that story is um just the theme of um the the ever expanding map. You know, you go someplace and they tell you about someplace else. Um I definitely uh, I feel like I'm I'm very called to this kind of polar region um, exploration. Like I I loved going to Svalbard um, and going to Baffin Island. Um, I'd love to keep you know throwing darts at the places on the map that look hard to get to and people don't really go. Um, Greenland is definitely a place that's on my list. Um, going to um, Ellesmere Island. Um, would be very cool. There's parts of Antarctica, um, like the Mount Vincent area that would be super awesome. Um, just, they're all kind of logistical nightmares. Um, and these days, um, I'm just kind of more interested in waiting for the opportunity to feel right than to force something. Like I You know, if one day um, there's a team of, you know, some people I know who are trying to put it together and they're really stoked and it feels like something I want to put, you know, time, energy and money into being a a part of that team and, you know, making that opportunity happen, um, I'm about it.
0: Yeah, I think that's, you know, a sensible way to go about it. It's And how it's worked in the past of, you know, kind of taking the opportunities as they come, that it is the most enjoyable rather than trying to like force something to work just to check it off a list.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you can do that. I mean, you could, I'm sure if you just like trolled the internet, you could find anybody who's trying to put together a team. And I've had people who have texted me um, about like, Oh, you know, I want to go to Peru or somewhere or like, you know, go climb Mount Everest or something. Would you want to go with me for this? And I'm, you know, if it's, if it's somebody I don't know or kind of have that comfort level with, I'm less apt to say yes to something um, because I just, I know how it feels to just be in a super harsh and intense environment and feel totally chill because you're with somebody or with a crew of people who you have like a really good groove with and like, you know, to check on each other, you know how to, be a good team member, and everybody's kind of helping everybody. So nobody's feeling like they're being strained. Um, that's hard to achieve. And you're not going to achieve it by just like rolling the dice um, with people you don't know or don't feel good about.
0: Right. Yeah. That comfort level seems like it'd be vastly important when it comes to, you know, mountain sports, being outside, being in these intense, sort of moments and places where you're not familiar. Mm-hmm. Now taking a bit of a pivot, you did mention a book that you have authored. So you want to share a little bit about what that journey was like and what the book is about.
1: Um, So the book is called without restraint. Uh, my dad and I wrote it together. Um, the, the journey essentially, it started actually on that Antarctica trip where we kind of met everybody. Um, we were on a large boat um, that was promised to have Wi-Fi and did not. And it's two and a half days of crossing uh, the Drake Passage, which is essentially the section of the ocean between like the, the pointy part of Chile and Argentina and uh, the pointy part of the Antarctic Peninsula. So uh, we had a lot of time on our hands, and my dad was just kind of reflecting on this journey. And he was like, this is crazy that you went from being this person, uh, who was projected to not have much of a future to being, um, on this like trip to Antarctica and, um, being a good skier and having skied all of these places. So, um, he started writing and, uh, he pitched the idea to me and this is when I was in this phase of, you know, not um, knowing how college was going to go for me and kind of dealing with the woes of just being out of the public school system for so long. And I initially didn't really want to be part of it. I was like, I, why would I want to expose to the whole world that I'd been through this journey with the mental health system and with, you know, these special needs schools and getting restrained? It's just like it's so hard or I perceived it as being so hard for a regular person to understand and not um, kind of judge me that I was just looking forward to the idea that I could go to college and just not have to talk about it and just be Ryan. Um, But he said that he thought it would really help people who are still in those schools and who don't have somebody to look to who they can say like this person made it out and turned out all right Um, because I certainly didn't. I didn't know anybody who had been through that system and he really had much to show for it afterwards. So um, I agreed to it, but I was like, I want to make sure that I have um, my words in there too. So he gave me a bullet pointed list of everything he had written about um, in like just not even chapters, just events. And I took that bullet-pointed list, and I wrote a chapter for each bullet point. And we traded versions um, after, and then we were thinking about what to do with them. Um, and I had read another book that was—it was an autobiography. Um, it was uh, Alex Honnold's book, actually, and he had written it in his voice. But there was also, I guess, I'll call them a narrator who would kind of provide perspective on how big the things he were doing was. And it was written to voices. So I was like, what if we did something like that for ours? Can we have it be that um, it's kind of written in my voice and yours? You, You kind of having the parent perspective and watching your kid go through this and wanting the best for them. And me being the kid who's got feet on the ground and is like actually seeing all of what's happening. So it took a lot of drafts to get it to work out that way. But that is what we went with. And that is what got published.
0: And so what was the publishing moment like for you? You know, it's one thing to talk to your dad about, this will be good for people who were in situations like myself, to okay, now it's actually out there in the world and I'm going to have, you know, these conversations and be vulnerable about my past and not just be able to go to college and kind of shove it under the rug.
1: It took me like an hour to write the post that the book was coming out and that people should buy it. It, Like, it took me a long time to grasp. I'm like, damn, I have to like promote this now and make it seem like I'm like really stoked that like all of this, all of my secrets are out here now. and I think I spent 20 minutes just, like, hovering my finger above the button. Um, but as soon as I pushed it, I was shocked at how much overwhelming support I got. Um, there, I didn't – I thought I was going to lose friends over this because they are just going to be like, oh, like, you know, we didn't know all this stuff. This is, like, too much. Um, but it was not like that. It was more like, why didn't you tell us? Like, this – this is crazy and so cool that you like made it through that. I'm like, I don't know. I never thought anybody would call this cool. Like I thought it was weird. Uh, so that really helped me make peace with it a lot. Um, and I realized like the secret just wasn't the way to do it. Cause it was going to come out eventually with anybody who like knew me well enough. I was going to have to have like the big confession. Uh, and it's almost more peaceful to just have it in the world and it's like it's just out there now
0: yeah yeah I think it's a it shows a lot of growth to be able to get to that point and realize like this is actually better in forging relationships and you know letting your truth out there now do you ever think like, is there a chance, because you mentioned how, you know, at one point you were on medications and then they didn't work and now you're off it. Is there a possibility that you could in some way regress to what you were like in your childhood?
1: No, um, not really. I mean, it's like, well, to define that, it's like, what was I like in my childhood? I, I probably have regressed to what I was like in my childhood because there was a time when I just had a lot of energy that was really unfocused, and I uh, didn't like doing what I was told um, and um, struggled to sit still. I think all of those things are still very true. Um, it was the response to that that really did the most damage. It was um, it was being physically restrained and, and um, being kind of demonized for how I was and having people tell me the way I was, was wrong and punishing me for being how I was. And what I needed was to be in an environment where I could use how I was to an advantage, um, and learn what my path was in the world. So, you know, when I was a kid, that was tough because like it, you know, I just didn't have the social skills to to realize like, okay, it's probably not polite to stand up in in the middle of class and just start walking around but eventually i got old enough to know all right even though i feel like getting up and walking around right now i just gotta sit through this and i'll do it later like i just needed to grow up to some degree um but it'll never be as bad as it was because i've spent a lot of time healing like i'm not i'm not gonna um see conflict coming and you know, run in, off into the woods or just, like, have an all-out brawl with somebody. Um, it's Does it still make me tense? Yeah, but I have more tools to deal with it now.
0: Right. Well, I appreciate you answering that question. I wanted to ask it for, like, kind of those moments or the people who are experiencing something similar when they're, like, in that moment of, you know, we haven't gotten the progression out the the toolbox to make social situations easier to navigate and stuff like that. So um I felt like that was kind of important to to touch on. And it sounds like you are definitely in a better place.
1: Yeah. And it's like it's not the book, it's not a a a medical um recommendation for sure. Um it's not like a like all meds are bad and you shouldn't go on them. But the point of the book was really just that um, the the system doesn't always know. Um, if you're a parent, you probably know better than anybody else. Um, what your kid needs, and if you're a person, you probably know what you need better than anybody else. Unless, you know, there's some kind of sciencey things that a doctor might know that you might not know. Um, but I was mismedicated. Um, I was medicated. Um, with how you would uh, medicate a bipolar person, and um. I um, was having PTSD symptoms. So essentially they were just putting more and more meds um, down the tube and saying, huh, it's, it's not working. When he like gets into a confrontation, it still results in a restraint every time Uh, we must just need more meds. And eventually I got numbed out enough that I didn't have as much of an emotional reaction to anything. Um, But it was never going to work because I wasn't having Um, violent outbursts because I was a bipolar person um, who had um, like manic issues. I was having violent outbursts because I was scared of having violence done onto me and was not able to leave the environment where that was happening. Um, So, you know, meds might be great for the person who needs them, but um, if you're not medicated for the right thing, it won't work.
0: Mm. Yes, of course, that makes a lot of sense. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today?
1: I mean, I, I think we we covered a lot of it. Um, it was I've actually I've done a lot of these um, podcasts, and things seem to go more chronological. This was the first like conversational one that really felt totally free form. Uh, so I hope everybody was able to follow. We jumped around in the timeline a lot, um, but. I hope that um, sharing a little bit of my journey um, can help people uh, realize um, that they're not alone and if they're going through something um, that it's possible to have to be going through something or have gone through something and still um, have really great things happen in your life and create something of yourself and that I highly recommend uh, getting out into the outdoors Uh, and finding a pursuit like skiing or rock climbing, really just any activity um, that has that immediate feedback cycle um, where your progress depends solely on the effort you put in because it will open you up like nothing else will and you'll learn a lot about yourself. And it's hard because you do have to own your failures. There's some days that will feel hard, um, but it also... Forces you to own your successes too and learn that you are a very capable creature and you should believe in yourself.
0: Great. That's some great advice here at the end. And like you said, you know, we weren't necessarily chronological uh with your story, but I think it it flowed for some nice kind of like this is why we're here and, and this is how things how things ended up. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question that doesn't have to do with what we've been talking about. So, my question for you today is: What mammal do you identify with?
1: Hmm, there's so many good ones. Um, I like. I don't want to. I feel like I could think of a better answer, but I have this like belief that like the first thing that comes to mind is usually right. Um, so I'm gonna say uh, probably wolves. Um, uh, because I feel like wolves kind of have a, uh, a bit of a negative connotation just being carnivores, um, but they are loyal to the wolves around them. They, they work in teams well. Uh, they put their um, their slowest um, slash um, most sick or ill members in the front of the pack to set the pace for the group when they're moving, which is a fundamental principle in group management. Uh, and make sure that nobody gets left behind so I don't know they they might chase other small animals down and eat them but they also look out for uh, their fellow wolf
0: all right that brings this episode to a close so of course if you would like to connect with Ryan his Instagram will be in the description so that's got lot of good information and fun stuff with all of his adventures so feel free to go connect with him there and of course we will be leaving a link to the book that he wrote with his dad uh it's on amazon so we'll be leaving that link if you would like to go read that and check that out and of course if you would like to connect with the podcast our website is in the description that brings you to all of our past episodes our social media we are on instagram facebook and linkedin Support of those pages is always appreciated. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. And if you would like to be a guest on this podcast and share your story, my email is in the description. That is always the best way to reach me. So thank you so much, Ryan, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you for having me.